Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast. I'm John Anthony Dunn, and today we're going to talk about ecological grief. And joining me to do that, we have Grace Emmett, who is a PhD candidate in New Testament at King's College London. How's it going, Grace? Doing well, thank you. And we have Dr. Logan Williams, who recently completed a PhD in New Testament at Durham University. How's it going, Logan? Yeah, John, glad to be here. And we have a special guest. We have Hannah Malcolm, who is a PhD candidate in theology at Durham University and an ordinant in the Church of England. How's it going, Hannah? Hi, thanks for having me. So how about we begin with a little bit about what you're currently researching in your PhD program at Durham? Yeah, sure. So my research is um, around how we might talk theologically about the experience um, that a lot of people have started to call something like climate and ecological grief. I suppose I became interested in doing further research into it as a theological subject because uh, it's currently, I guess, a phenomenon that has been largely presented in a a kind of a psychological or sociological frame. Um, It's become quite common in um, anthropological readings of, of the way uh, we experience the world and um, what it means to be human in a wider in a wider world, and there's very little um, done on the subject from a theological perspective. We have a, a primarily um, ethics of behaviour frame of reference for talking about climate and ecological grief, and while that's all well and good and important, there's a real gap in our failure, I guess, to acknowledge things that have already been lost, um, things it's too late to save. Uh, what it means to experience those losses um, and what that experience means just not not just in a in a pastoral context you know what does it mean to support people through that loss theologically um, but also what that experience might be as a form of knowledge um, about the world and about God so um, I'm interested in whether climate and ecological grief um, can be a form of theological knowledge for us and if it is what that means for our um, our doctrines, um, what it means for the wider church tradition, um, and how we might um, describe it as having theological meaning rather than just being um, a form of uh, a form of trauma or difficulty to which the church should respond in a pastoral context. I wonder if we can just find out more about how you became interested in this whole area of sort of eco theology in the first place. It'd be great to know sort of what kind of drove you to start this PhD. I think, I mean, I have, a, I have a, like a, I guess, a longer interest um, or involvement in things around climate activism and how Christians can respond to that and be involved in it. And I think perhaps part of my frustration or my, my sense that there was a lack in some of that was this feeling that there's increased motivation amongst Christians to participate in climate activism now. Um, it's it's much less of a, a fringe or, um, I guess, in the UK anyway, it's much less now seen as something that's a quote-unquote liberal activity and not, not something for the mainstream church to be doing. But amidst all that, we're still very narrowly focused in the way we think theologically about it to, um, you know, basically a few verses in Genesis. Um, a little bit about um, eschatology sometimes, but we have a very narrow theological frame of reference for why this behavior is good, other than a sense that if we don't do it, it's kind of embarrassing that the church isn't responding to to a crisis that the whole world is responding to. So I became interested in how we can think about um, theological responses to those things, 
not just as, I guess, mining the Christian tradition for ideas or bits of scripture that feel relevant that we can then just apply. Um, you know, so we'll, we'll sometimes you find in ecological and theological conversations that people will turn to the Bible or turn to the Christian tradition and pull out someone or something that feels relevant. So I'll say, oh, well, there was St. Francis. And, um, you know, in the book of Job, there's wild animals. Therefore, <laughs> we should care about the world around us. And I guess I've become convinced that that approach is insufficient when we're facing this time of, of mass death, when we're facing a time of mass breakdown. So um, it's not sufficient anymore to see um, it as a problem that little bits of the theological tradition can be applied to, but that this experience should be something that turns us to think again about the whole of Christian tradition, and that it should turn us to um, considering what it means for Christians to live in the world in a time like this. I guess part of my concern or one of the reasons I began to think about doing further research theologically into this phenomenon is that Christian engagement with environmental questions has generally been reduced to quite a narrow series of ethical questions. So we ask which resources or tools can be drawn from our spiritual tradition in order to persuade people to behave in more ethical ways. Um, I suppose I don't believe that just giving people the right rules to follow is sufficient for imagining what um, the Christian tradition means in light um, of the scale of this crisis and the trauma that's being experienced. Um, and particularly as members of a global church, I think that climate grief is going to force us to turn again to core doctrines of our faith um, and also our history. Um, for many people around the world, this climate or ecological grief has its roots in much older traumas, um, things like displacement and loss of land through colonialism, through extractive capitalism. Um, so climate grief has, I think, for me, demanded that I invest much more emotional and spiritual energy into interrogating the doctrines of my faith. Um, because this moment is a, is a time of death. We li we're living through a time of death. It's not just about changing our light bulbs um, or signing the right petitions. What I want to do is try and treat climate grief as an experience of the world that can be a form of knowledge about ourselves and the world we live in and the God we worship. And it is, of course, an imperfect and limited. And also, um, importantly, it's an easily corrupted form of knowledge. Um, we can talk a bit about that and, and how we think about um, the ethics of grief. But if we're willing to ask hard questions about our grief and examine where it's coming from, um, I think it can be uh, both a key to survival and also a form of, of transformation for us, um, particularly within the church. Uh, so in terms of actually enabling people and empowering people to form that kind of holistic vision of themselves, the world, and God. How does that actually happen? Because at, at the moment, you know, Christian engagement with climate crisis doesn't really touch the, the notion of climate grief, as you noted a lot. But, but most of the time, our, our engagement with it is just come to this church session where we're going to talk about this. And you've been a part of one of those at my church which is not bad by any means, but it doesn't really seem like uh, having a one-off, you know, we're going to take an hour to think about this and then everyone's going to go home. Uh, that doesn't really seem sufficient, does it, to establish the kinds of re-envisaging and formation that you're discussing. So how does this, how does this actually happen in practice? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. One of the um, one of the trends that's unfortunate that I've noticed in the ways that we um, 
engage theologically with climate and ecological crisis is as you say we'll have something like an annual session where we'll have a well today at church we're going to really focus on climate so we'll have someone come in they'll do a talk um, we'll all feel very upset we'll make some commitments maybe something about the church as a community might change usually something about infrastructure so we'll change something about our building um, or the way we recycle and then there's a fatigue that sets in and after a few months um you know, people have moved on emotionally and then there will be the, the next year will come around and we'll do it again. And, you know, that describes it's not just climate change. It's not just um, justice questions around that. It describes the way that the church approaches a lot of questions of justice in the world. So it's, you know, you can see a quite similar model for something like the ways that um, church giving to international development, for example, functions. So someone will come in annually and give a moving talk about a project or a, a tragedy on the other side of the world and people will give. I think the danger of that is it does a couple of things. Um, one, as you say, it limits it um, to a particular time or session as um, kind of easy to silo from other parts of Christian life. But also it reinforces this idea that particularly um, in the West, in the minority world, we are the where the sort of actors, and there are people elsewhere in the world who are passive, who experience this trauma or loss, and then we can respond. Um, and so we're constantly reinforcing that um, that active passive dynamic in the way we think about the global church. So if we turn to something like thinking about how this experience can be theological knowledge, I think there's the potential for that to be a challenge to this active passive dynamic, but also it challenges us to tell our own stories um, and to see climate and ecological grief as something that can inform the wider church community. So on a practical level, there are ways that can change. I think one of them is by turning to the ways that we gather to worship and allowing these um, experiences to shape our time of worship together. And I guess I, I have quite a lot of opinions about how that could be done well. But one of the things that I think limits that is that we're still missing in our Christian ethics what it means to see grief or mourning as an ethical question or that grief as, an, as a behavior is ethically loaded. So I think most people, including most Christians, treat grief expressions as natural unbidden response to loss that it's basically ethically neutral so how you feel has very little relation to the good things that you should do and so we've detached how we think we should respond to climate crisis from our experience of the world and that means it's very easy to put it in a little box once a year now i do think that grief is an unbidden or natural response to loss in in one sense and of course, as well, in the Christian tradition, we have a rich history of saying that grief is, is an, an a fitting or an appropriate response to um, loss, because we have a tradition that says that death is a, a product of brokenness. So we, we should have a rich resource to draw on there. But one of the things we seem to be missing is this idea that grief is a learned behavior. We learn who or what is worth grieving and who or what is not. Um, one example of this is people saying things like, don't worry, mostly people with disabilities and health conditions will die from COVID. So it's not that serious, right? We, we imply in those kinds of statements who is worthy of grief, which losses um, have significance for us as communities. 
which losses do not. So we constantly um, learn and relearn what is worth grieving and, and that is a reflection of our relation to the world around us. And I think understanding that can help us to think about what it would mean to grieve well, including in Christian communities. And until we're able to start to talk about grief as a behavior that we participate in, um, we are going to be limited to, you know, private expressions of climate or, or ecological grief where we feel profound anxiety or um, trauma or loss as individuals or as small communities. And then when we come together in church, that's where we talk about, well, we need to do these behavior changes or what does it mean to, I guess, try and divest ourselves of, of our complicity in some of these structures. And it's not that that's a bad thing to do, but that, as you say, it can become very heavily siloed if the wider experience of living in the world while much of the world is dying um, does not become a question that we ask in, in our communities of worship, in our personal spirituality, um, in the ways we imagine the role of Christians in, in politics, in, in, in the public as well. I think this concept of ecological grief as you've said is sort of particularly unique because we're dealing with something that doesn't have a closure in the same way um, as if a person's died and we're grieving them and I've heard you talk about how this experience is sort of like being homesick while you're at home and I wondered if you could just unpack that a bit more for us. Yeah so one of the challenges that people who want to talk about this phenomenon have faced is that we don't have words for it in the English language um, so one approach to that that's been taken is to try and make up words for it. So uh, Glenn Albrecht, who is a philosopher in Australia, he has come up with a whole series of words to talk about um, these new experiences that we're having en masse, um, or at least, as he says, experiences that are not necessarily new, but that we don't have words for in the English language. So Solastalgia was inspired by um, a community in New South Wales and Australia um, living with strip mining taking place um, on their land and how that profoundly reshaped their relationship to the world around them and the kinds of anxieties and, and feelings of homesickness that it created. That could be kind of one approach that we try and find new ways to describe this grief. And as you say, it's, it's not something that has traditional closure. And so um, one, one thing we could say is, for example, climate crisis is a grief multiplier. So it's not um, one grief that we will mourn and then we'll move on. But it's a it's a state of the world, which means that griefs will continue to multiply. Um, so we have to, I guess, in one sense, we're accepting that we now live in a time where we will not have closure over those things. Um, we can't rely on time to heal it. And and so that's why I've been, I suppose, unconvinced by uh, attempts, particularly in psychology, um, to try and apply frames of thought that we use for talking about humans grieving humans so for example um freud's understanding of melancholia um has been is, is quite popular in trying to describe what humans experience um with climate and ecological grief and i think those i guess frames of reference are maybe like an important starting point because we need to have something to refer to um, but they're insufficient because we're talking about a new kind of grief and also uh, you know i i think it it's maybe almost slightly it's slightly misleading to try and talk about um, the ways that humans grieve other humans as though it's parallel to or identical with the ways that humans grieve the non-human. Um, it it is kind of um, it doesn't acknowledge the distinctiveness of either what it means to be human in a human community and also what it means to be human in a world where we are one creature amongst many. And and those are two distinct relationships which 
deserve to be treated with um, the kind of respect that requires treating them as distinct um, or worthy of distinct consideration. And so that does mean that our theological mode of thinking about humans grieving other humans, while relevant, is, is insufficient for this kind of grief. I wonder if we could say more about what prevents Christians in particular from from grieving um, the ecological situation. Uh, my, my hunch has always been that this kind of flows downstream from suspicions, at least in kind of like an American evangelical context about like, the legitimacy of evolutionary theory, right? Where it's like, oh, well, I, I distrust scientists on biology and, and maybe even I distrust geologists on the age of the earth. Mm. So why would I trust them about the ecological crisis, right? So I, I've always had this hunch that it just flows downstream from mm. like broader, you know, scientific suspicion. But then also it is, I think, you know, some somewhat also related to just like bad eschatology, right? Like either like this really kind of, you know, it's all going to burn and be destroyed sort of thing and a, a total lack of continuity and, and any kind of expectation about what new creation might look like. I wonder if you would think that that is accurate. Is there more to it? Is there something else going on? I mean, you had mentioned the political issues kind of briefly where you said, you know, in, in the UK, it's no longer strictly a liberal thing. It's kind of become more like mainstream. I think there's still a little bit of that political issue in the States as well. So there's a lot, there's a lot to this. And I'm just wondering if maybe we can unpack some of that a bit more. Yeah, I actually totally agree with you about the relation between evolution and um, climate change. My previous job was working with children and young people to talk about the dialogue between science and religion. And I did quite a lot of teacher training about how to teach um, evolution in faith schools in ways that did not present it as an either or choice, but as something which was both and, that children could decide to believe both. And that was an option available to them. And one of the reasons that I gave to teachers for why that was so important was that um, you know, if children are made to feel that their faith is counter to something like the theory of evolution, then they will also find that that mistrust of science will lead them to be unable to participate in something like climate breakdown as, uh, as, as knowledge that they need to accept and that will shape their lives. So I, I totally agree with you. I think um, that wider relationship between um, science and theology is definitely at play. Interestingly, I actually think that climate crisis, at least in the UK, has, has really introduced a new mode of relationship for science and theology. So, you know, previously the way they've related has been basically um, either a question of apologetics, right? So um, we we need to know that our faith is reasonable. And so a few experts will reassure us that science doesn't contradict our faith. Um, or it's been um, a source of, you know, new technology that changes the way the church does missions. So you could think about technology like the internet as being an example of that. Or it's become, I guess, a battleground for niche ethical questions that people either choose to get very involved in or not. So something like stem cell research would be an example of that. Um, but climate crisis, you know, is a, is a reckoning with the whole of life. There is no part of life which is not affected by it. And so it's really, at least in the UK, I think transformed the way Christians refer to science. It's, it can no longer be just something that experts do, science and theology dialogue as a sort of expert vocation for, for a few people, but that science and what it tells us about the world is 
transforming the whole of faith. And so I think, you know, in a US context, there's that threat which exists as a background thing. And I, I do think that's right. Um, I think there's a history of it, particularly in the US being a, a you know, it's a culture war problem. <laughs> you know, it's framed as a, as a liberal issue. Um, and a side note of that, you know, whether or not it's seen as um, threatening as a liberal issue, it, it becomes optional, right? So some Christians will care very much about this. Other Christians will care very much about this. We all have to pick our thing. Um, and climate crisis is a thing for some people. And yeah, I, I agree as well. You know, as I said, we've had a very narrow frame of scriptural reference for talking about climate breakdown, either Genesis or eschatology, and that's reflected in people's critiques of involvement. So we have lots of bad interpretations of dominion, and then we have quite a lot of bad interpretations of the future of the earth. And, and those two things have just dominated any possibility of talking about the way the world is now should shape our theology. Um, but I, I think, you know, the other thing that's going on, which isn't just about ideology um, or about the way we read scripture, is that, as I say, climate breakdown is a reckoning with the whole of life. And so, to be honest, Christians in the minority world have been very, very comfortable for a very long time that there are some issues which we talk about as issues of personal holiness, but that basically how you live your, you know, middle to upper, upper middle class lifestyle is not a question of concern for Christian ethics and can't be touched. Um, so, you know, there are no ethical questions raised previously about how we travel, um, you know, what we consume, how many things we own. Those have, in recent Christian history in the West, um, been pushed very much to the back because we've comforted ourselves, I think, with the belief that the whole world is going to get richer. And so, um, you know, up until quite recently, there was the sense that the developing world or the majority world you know, poverty was on the decrease. And so our behavior in the West was not, um, you know, a threat to justice elsewhere or not a threat to the poor elsewhere. And as that's shown to be increasingly untrue, um, it's, a, it's a deception that we've participated in. If you accept the reality of that, the, the you know, the theological demands that that makes on your life are enormous. And it's, um, it's much easier to just deny them or to act as though they're not true. And I, I think that's a a real influence as well. Um, and it's very easy to then to hide behind things like um, other priorities or the way we read scripture um, or culture wars. So brief anecdote. Uh, when, I, when I taught Christian ethics at Durham, uh, we'd have one session on um, ecology. And one of the things I'd always bring up in those classes is I'd bring up Ann Coulter's uh, famous early horrible comment to be in the image of God uh, means to, you know, drill, baby, drill for oil. She literally uses the term rape the earth as um, a kind of implication and actualization of uh, being in the image of God. I'd always ask my students, how would you argue against this? You know, how would you, how would you say that the image of God doesn't entail doing these kinds of activities? And nobody would ever be able to answer with anything coherent. At the same time, I now think that that question is probably only minimally helpful because I wonder what does a Christian theological response to Ann Coulter look like and all that she represents, right? And all the kind of ideology that she represents. Is it really just about how do we read Genesis 1, 26, 28? Probably not. So my question to you in light of that is what 
actual forms of resistance can Christians do to oppose this kind of horribly toxic thinking that being in the image of God, you know, requires or entails, you know, basically the destruction of the earth, the increase of, you know, climate grief across the world. It's horribly insidious, but it seems to me to require a response that's far more holistic than just you should read Genesis differently. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the one of the basic problems that's going on um, is, as you say, we get trapped in this debate about a couple of verses. Um, I thought you were going to ask me to try and answer that question better than your undergrad students did. Um, I, I could feel my my anxiety rising slightly, like, will I come up with a better response than undergrad Christian ethics? Um, they had no response, basically. So. <laughs> they were just like, we I might, don't know, she's she's right. I'm like, God, come on. Like, I guess is related to your question in that, um, you know, we know what the image of God looks like in its fullness in the person of Christ. And we have, you know, it's not a question of trying to re, um, you know, it's not a question of imagining new Christian tradition or doctrine in order to solve this problem. You know, the sins are not new. Right. So the crisis is new. The extent of the crisis is new because we have more power over the earth than we used to. But the sins are not new. They are the same. Um, they are greed, it's violence, selfishness, um, indifference to the suffering of others. These are sins we're familiar with um, and we have a tradition to respond to them. And I, I think at a very basic level, one of them is that we we talk in our churches, you know, that not in a way that makes people think that there's a there's a kind of like ecological version of theology that they have to adopt that's like a combination of christianity and some kind of like earth spirituality right which feels frightening to people it feels like uh, a threat to their tradition to what they understand about god and so it's not accessible and actually a lot of it isn't written to be accessible to normal people a lot of it's very academic um in its expression and it's it's really a lot of it's an internal academic debate. Um, so that's not what I'm proposing. What I'm proposing is that we um, we turn to valuing again in our tradition, things like simplicity, things like humility, things like seeing um, the choice to reject the accumulation of wealth as something which is good and holy. Um, and we have huge theological resources for that. Um, it's not a new idea, um, but we're seeing the results of our failure to do that, uh, you know, uh, on a larger scale than we've ever done before. And so I guess that would be one thing um, that I would say would be a starting point, which requires us to turn to our own tradition and not to um, imagine that there's this new version of Christian theology that needs to be created in order to respond to the and cultures of this world. Um, I guess like related to that would be it being helpful to distinguish in our minds between something like Christian engagement with responding to uh, structural sin or to systems of violence and Christians' um, responsibility for personal holiness. One of the debates that rages within climate activism is how, uh, you know, what's the relation between personal action and um, structural action, right? So which is more important or is there any need to do any personal action at all? You know, um, people will repeatedly cite that there's a hundred companies responsible for 70% of, of fossil fuel use in the world. And so therefore we are not culpable. Um, and that's, you know, it's problematic for a number of reasons. One is that of course, while it's true that as individuals, none of us are responsible in that sense for climate breakdown and particularly younger people um, and people who 
don't haven't accumulated quite a lot of wealth. Um, the rules for this game were written before they were born. So I was born in 1992. Like we were already locked in <laughs> before I was born into a way of living that was gonna that was gonna end with this crisis. But if the kind of reign of terror of these fossil fuel corporations is going to come to an end, if that violence which rules over most of the earth will come to an end, then the ways that many people in the minority world live is going to have to change quite fundamentally. Um, we will have to move from, you know, some, one way we could describe it is we need to move to a sense of, of private, um, like we need to move away from the sense of private luxury into a sense of public luxury and, and private sufficiency. So we are going to have to change our behavior. And for Christians, one of the ways we can think about that is something like personal holiness. Now, for me, I distinguish between action that I take that um, is a response to structural sin, or, you know, I might participate in activism, um, which um, I see as something I'm being called to do as a Christian to, to witness about the nature of the world and, and what is good for it. Um, but that also there's a calling on each of us to personal holiness, that, the, that God is interested in the ways we live as individuals. Um, God is interested in how our families function. And so we're also required to examine whether the ways we're living um, are holy as individuals. Um, and if we can keep those things as two separate questions, then that will help us to, I think, like draw in more people into this conversation in the Christian tradition, that both of those are routes that we're going to need to take. Um, and they both require a response from the church. Um, we aren't asking people to take up one and not the other. Um, but if you ask people to take up one and not the other, then people will either get very, very burnt out. You know, if you, if you participate in lots and lots of personal lifestyle changes, but um, you can't see the connection to the bigger picture, then that's a way to lead to real burnout um, and a feeling of isolation. And if you participate in structural change, but you don't change any of your personal behaviors, I, I think it becomes really difficult to sustain hope in the possibility of change in the world around you. If you yourself cannot um, change, or if, if, it's, if it doesn't seem possible for you to imagine the world differently as an individual, it becomes very, very hard to sustain hope that there might be the possibility for change for other people too. I love what you said about the fact that we sort of already have really the theological traditions for responding to this. That it's not a case of needing to invent new theological traditions, um, but returning to things like simplicity and humility are ways in which we can kind of move forward and respond to this theologically. And I think that's really helpful because I often see resistance in Christian circles to this issue along the lines of it sort of being peripheral or kind of not core to the business of saving souls or kind of um, hardcore mission activities. And actually, um, we kind of need to recover this idea of it being intrinsic to the expression of Christian faith. And we sort of have that reflected in the Anglican Church in terms of the fifth mark of mission. Uh, it's kind of very much embedded in what it is to be a Christian. But I wonder if you could say to what extent you think that resistance to acting on climate justice stems from this sense that um, it's actually peripheral and not a part of our kind of core calling as Christians. I think that's right. I think it is treated as peripheral. And in part, you know, that is just um, the ways that Christians have reflected wider society. Climate breakdown has been treated as peripheral. <laughs> um, you know, ecological ethical questions have been treated as peripheral by philosophers who are not in the Christian tradition. Um, you know, we 
we have only very recently started talking about the ways we treat the living world as ethically loaded. So it it's um it has been a, a side concern for most of recent history. And and even the ways we you know treat the the seriousness of it as a, the seriousness of it as a political issue is very recent. So um it was only in 2018 that the BBC released an internal memo to say that they could stop having climate deniers on to provide balance for climate scientists. But that was only two years ago that the BBC said, you know what, we've decided that balance as part of our, you know, our our mission statement as a broadcaster is not best achieved by inviting people who deny the reality of climate change onto our programs to debate climate scientists. So, you know, that's very recent history. Um, and unfortunately, the church has reflected that, um, you know, and I don't want to make sweeping statements like as though that's true of all Christians. There is a longer history of Christians expressing particular concern for the ways that we um, have destroyed um, much of the resources or the the places that we've been given to look after. What it means going forward, I guess, or or how we challenge this idea that it's in the periphery. We've sort of danced around the question a little bit of how we might talk about a whole a whole theological narrative that makes sense of the world um, in light of climate breakdown and makes sense of our relation to God in light of climate breakdown and that isn't just questions about a couple of verses in Genesis or um, looking at Revelation. And I think for me, one of the things that has helped me to do that is to think about um, how we might talk about the doctrine of creation. Um, and so for me, I would start with something like creation as divine gift. So we believe God is creator, which means that God, that creation is both distinct from and constantly upheld by God and that everything that exists is a product of God's creative love. So it's a gift to be created. And to understand the fullness of that gift, we have to move away from how we've traditionally, I don't want to say traditionally, but how we've maybe more recently treated it, which is that we've treated it as though the earth is a gift to us. So we are recipients of a series of gifts rather than being gifts ourselves. Um, So we as humans are given as a gift to the earth, to its creatures and to each other. And likewise, the earth and its creatures are given as gift to us. We have this interdependence um, in the ways that we've been created. And we like to imagine ourselves as essential or inevitable or independent. And there is no part of creation that is essential or inevitable for God. There's no part of creation then that's independent of God's loving gift. So if we start to see ourselves in that light as a gift and as recipients of gift, then we will live lives of gratitude. Um, as an alternative or an antidote for lives which grasp for power. And and I think, you know, the other side effect of that doctrine is that we can celebrate the diversity of creation and the different gifts offered. Um, and also that seeing other creatures as gifts is not dependent anymore on whether we treat, we understand them as gifts. So we don't get to decide which creatures or places are gifts of God to us based on whether we find them beautiful or useful. So that invites us to humility in the way that we view the non-human or or even other humans. You know, we have unfortunately a tragic history as well of treating other humans as though they're resources for us. Um, And that has been determined by our own flawed assessment of who is beautiful and who is useful. So existence itself becomes the basis for treating something as a gift rather than our own um, limited knowledge. Um, And also that doctrine can help us to understand how we've sinned. 
So we've refused to receive God's gift in full. We've seen it as just a gift to us. So the doctrine of creation um, as being something which shapes the whole of the history of the people of God, um, rather than something which tells us about how things started, right? It's not, a, it's not an explanation doctrine. It's not telling us um, how things began. Um, it's telling us why we are here and, and what it means to live now. And then um, the other thing that I think we've really lacked in our response has been um, what the incarnation and resurrection of Jesus means for um, the, the goodness of the material. So our tradition teaches that God takes on flesh, God takes on the dust of the earth, um, and God rises in a material body, which still bears the scars of, of suffering and pain. Um, and also, you know, maybe even more strangely than that, we teach that Jesus ascends to heaven fully divine and fully human okay so this is a very weird and beautiful part of our creeds that we we don't tend to focus on we tend to focus on the resurrection but you know god ascends as the body that was also the body that you know was born of a woman and and suffered and died on earth so we must believe that the world that god enters is good and worthy of healing and for me that also shapes how we can understand climate and ecological grief you know um one of the things people might say is that we've got misplaced affection. So we feel all this climate and ecological grief. We feel this, this anxiety or this trauma about loss because we, um, we need to refocus our attention on God uh, because we become too attached to the world. Um, but actually, if we read that experience in light of the Christian tradition, it's not um, misplaced attachment. We we respond that way to the world because that is the way that God has responded to the world. God has responded. Um, by being willing to enter the world um, and to suffer for it, God suffering, I guess it's like opening a big theological kind of worms, but the person of Jesus um, weeps and suffers on earth and participates in that. Um, so the earth as being broken, which is something we have focused on in Christian tradition, you know, we've, we've focused very strongly on the earth's brokenness, I think in part as a way to excuse our behavior, um, to downplay its goodness. Rather than seeing that as meaning it's something to be discarded, we can see it as something that is to be healed. And that can shape the way we treat it as well, the way that we view it. So I would want to point to those two doctrines as a starting point, um, as well as you know what I mentioned earlier about the ways that Jesus lived as teaching us what it means to um, bear the image of God. Thank you for that. I love what you said about this sort of reciprocal gifting between us and creation and the idea that we can be practices of gratitude rather than, I guess, seeing our behaviour as sort of exercising power over the earth. And I'm wondering to sort of to what extent sort of gender plays into this conversation and perhaps Christian resistance to climate action and whether it's partly to do with this framing around sort of, I guess, masculine domination. And some of that came up in the analogy that um, Logan shared earlier, the way that um, kind of sexual and violent metaphors are used to talk about the way that we interact with the air just wondering what your thoughts are around that yeah I absolutely think it has um, a role to play you know unfortunately the church has once again um, in many ways just mimicked wider culture in how it's imagined um, relations between genders uh, what it means to be a man or a woman in the world um, and a lot of that has been quite heavily shaped by a, a particular set of I guess late 20th century imagination um, about basically um, who earns money 
and um, who looks after children. And from that, we've created this whole series of reference points for justifying our behaviour. And there's plenty of research to indicate that um, women in leadership roles uh, will be essential for mitigating the worst of climate breakdown. So unfortunately, because of this particular form of toxic masculinity, um, there's evidence that shows that women are more invested in the future of the living world. Uh, They're more likely to make changes to their behavior based on concern for environmental impact. There was actually a fascinating study they did where they... um, they got men to um, pick um, products in a supermarket. And if they if they put that a product was environmentally friendly on the packaging, but it looked quote unquote girly, um, then men would be unwilling to buy it. Um, but if the packaging was done in a manly way, when I say manly, you know, with sort of references to the wild, <laughs> um, then men would be more likely to buy this environmentally friendly version of a product. I'm, I'm not wrong in saying there was also one about men not wanting to use reusable bags because they felt like it wasn't manly um, because it, it would require them to carry a plastic bag into a shop rather than just picking one up when they went in. Um, so there's a, you know, there's a real fragility there that is absolutely worth exploring <laughs> about how, um, you know, at the root of it is this idea that indifference is something that is masculinized. So indifference to the experiences of others in the world, um, not caring is a form of expressing masculinity. To to be found out as um, expressing concern or care is a, is a feminized trait. So this is on a kind of micro level um, male psyche problem um but it's also relevant it's also relevant on a national scale so um nation states that have a greater proportion of women in national parliaments are more prone to environmental treaty ratification um even if you control for factors like gdp okay so there's quite significant um gender influence um and of course the other big factor in this is that women make up the majority of those living in poverty So that means that they are both less culpable for and more threatened by changing climate. Um, I think there was research that said, um, it was a couple of years ago now, but something like 80% of people displaced by climate change are women as it currently stands. And there'll be lots of reasons for that. Um, Some of it will be around cultural expectations. Some of it will be around, um, you know, whether or not women in that culture learn to swim, for example, um, in, in flooding disasters. Um, but also um, around women's responsibilities for children, um, for caring for the home, and also that they are more disposable. And even in the minority world, women have less disposable income and so have lower carbon footprints as a result of that. So there's absolutely a a gender dynamic to this. And as you say, that has um, shaped the way we've talked about the earth as well. Um, There's a, there's, you know, a very, very long history of talking about the earth um, in feminized language um you know we talk about the earth as mother that i mean i guess i see that way of speaking about the earth as a basically it should basically be a neutral thing i i i guess i'm quite resistant also to the um to the idea that that what we need is a a more feminized imagination about um the earth as a kind of spiritual being in order to change our behavior because we've had that understanding of the earth you know, in the background of our consciousness for a very long time. And actually it's encouraged us to use language um, like the example Logan gave earlier of our dominance. So so really what's needed is not that our our ways of describing the earth need to change, but the way we imagine ourselves needs to change. 
Um, and, and that isn't necessarily going to be achieved by just, um, you know, paying attention to the metaphors or ideas that we use um, for the earth. One of the things I'm interested in, in um, how we can better talk about climate grief is that things like lament um, have come back in fashion in the church. So people, at least in the UK, I don't know if it's happened in the US in the same way, but there's a real trend now of people saying, well, we need to do lament better and we need to lament, um, you know, across the whole church tradition, people are trying to find ways to reincorporate what we call lament into our practice. And what I've found is that quite often that means um, doing some gentle emotional manipulation to make people feel sad by telling them a sad story or telling them about, you know, getting them to think about something really upsetting. Um, and then they can feel bad and then they can participate in a, in a lament exercise. You know, that's problematic in part because it's a, you know, it's a kind of, um, there's a danger that we spiritually damage people. We don't know what experiences people have had. Uh, we don't know if they're coming into uh, a church service um, with sufficient space afterwards to be able to process the, the traumatic thing you've just told them, or if it is done directly pertinent to them. And also, um, you know, for people who don't respond very well to feeling like they're being emotionally manipulated or feeling like they are being put under pressure to um, emote externally in public spaces, they then retreat. Um, and, you know, men are more likely, I think, to respond this way than women, but they'll retreat and feel resistance to participation and feel as though, well, this isn't a practice I can participate in. Um, and if we restrict expressions of climate and ecological grief to those who feel a certain set of emotions at a certain time or are willing to, I don't know, cry in public about it or um, express public sadness in ways that sing, single them out as individuals, then we restrict who can participate. Um, and, you know, will probably exclude a lot of the Church of England as well, um, who are not, in my experience, a community very comfortable with public expressions of emotion. But if we see lament as a discipline that we're called to in the church, much like uh, rejoicing is a discipline, uh, we praise whether or not we feel like praising. Um, if we see lament as something which we participate in, regardless of our set of emotions or how we are willing to express them, but that um, we're required to do it as part of the church community, then we don't exclude people for whom, um, you know, some of those wider cultural problems of um, emotional expression or um, making themselves publicly vulnerable or people who have been damaged and so can no longer, um, you know, necessarily experience what we might think of as the correct emotions at the correct time um but who are who have been stifled in that way those people are, aren't excluded from participating in that lament process and so that's where i'd like to see um maybe our language about lament change um that it becomes something that we see as a discipline for the whole church and We've got resources for that that already exist. Again, this isn't necessarily a new idea. Um, the Psalms, there's plenty of Psalms of lament. And we we quite often treat the Psalms of lament as though um, they were either like kind of personal prayer diary moments or that they were only used when the whole community was feeling really sad. Um, but the Psalms, you know, are recited by the community, regardless of whether it's a reflection of everyone's experience in the community or not. They, they're a communal participation um, in an expression of lament that's rooted in something about the world that's true, which is that there's suffering and pain rather than whether our emotions um, reflect that particular truth at that time. 
Um, I'm also interested in examples like um, communal mourning um, or uh, professional mourners. You know, many cultures around the world still have professional mourners. Um, they their job is to express the grief of the community, whether they feel that grief strongly or not. They're they're you know they're hired to cry in public, not because they feel like crying in public, but because it's an expression of the community's grief. Um, and I'm not saying that you know we should suddenly start having professional mourners as like a cultural, like sort of drop in um, or extraction, but that um, we can see our our approach to something like lament as quite culturally narrow. Like we have a particular way of viewing grief as personal or private or um, rooted in a set of emotions, which is not necessarily the way that grief has to be understood, um, or our, you know a sense of um, expressing concern has to be understood it's not just tied to whether or not we feel indifference or we feel concern it makes me think of how in many respects i think the call of the prophets in the hebrew bible is to grieve what the rest of israel doesn't recognize as something worth grieving over right so mm -hmm. people like ezekiel and jeremiah and isaiah they're they're called to you know see the horrors of you know israel's sin at that time in a way that they don't recognize and it turns their life upside down right isn't it isaiah who has to like run naked through the streets of jerusalem or something and jeremiah's crying all the time and consistently breaking down um ezekiel's being perturbed by showing you know having all these images shown to him um about what's going on in the temple they're they're uniquely called to you know bear like see the horrors for what they are it it absolutely is disruptive to their life uh, mm -hmm. and it it leads them to into certain practices which you could say are vicarious or um but not only vicarious but also inciting in the sense that they're meant to incite the grief mm -hmm. of the rest of the community yeah right? they raise another question for us as well which is about the the ways we um imagine i guess like even the passing of time right so we have we want the process of grief to be over really quickly we want to feel as though there's a there's a quite constrained set of things we have to do and then that practice will be over and we can move on in the uk i think if you're still in what they call the first stage of grief um after someone dies um when you get to 6 months from that death then they they like designate you as being chronic um and will consider putting you on medication as a way of helping you to cope with your grief um which again is like a kind of culturally defined line from where you cross over from healthy grief to unhealthy grief um and in our practices of lament in the church we want to have like you know we want them to fit in like a comfortable hour <laughs> we have our church service and we'll focus on it for this week but then we want to be able to move on and to feel that closure will come quickly and we're dealing with um a tradition where god would call people to be people of lament for lifetimes you know for generations that it wasn't something that was um you know temporary or short term um jeremiah as you say um you know basically received a vocation of crying for for his entire as we as we might call it working life it wasn't um a one-off event or a, or a short-term thing um so we do have some real um 
again, it's, you know, we've we've taken particular ideas from the world around us about, about how these things should be expressed appropriately. And then we've tried to find theological justification for them um, rather than beginning with our traditions and, and seeing what that might mean for this contemporary moment. If I can come back to something you said earlier on in terms of the way that leadership in this area is often gendered, and we see that sort of on a political scale. Um, I'm wondering what your reflections are in terms of church leadership and whether that also seems to follow a kind of gendered flip. Yeah, um, I think, I guess one of the things that I hope for for the future of the church in its response um, to climate breakdown is that we will um, invest money and time into theologically training and practically resourcing women leaders in the church in the majority world, um, because that is. Um, you know, that's where the future of the church is. Um, so the majority of those regularly praying and attending church globally are women, and most of them are not in, in the West. Most of them are not in the minority world. Um, and also um, those women are the ones who um, are least culpable for and um, most affected by climate breakdown. You know, there's all kinds of examples you could give for that. Um, one would be that women are more likely to die in extreme weather events. One would be that women, um, you know, um, bear responsibility for things like water sourcing and so as as water scarcity increases so does that burden um, even things like um, even things like child brides the number of child brides has increased um, as a result of um, lands and economic insecurity in some parts of the world because families can no longer afford to to grow their own food um, and so the numbers of young girls being sold as brides um, or for sex has increased and so as a church that those kinds of realities need to shape how we imagine um the future of um our our theology and um where leadership will come from one of the things that i i guess i'm encouraged by is the thought that um there's there's a real and clear response that the church can give which is to say well as the body of christ those who need both most protection and also who are the obvious source of our theological leadership on this subject are the same group and so we can invest um, in that group we can invest in you know um, supporting theological leaders in that group and as a result of that then we will protect everyone because if you protect um, the most marginal of a community then everybody benefits and that is just as much true in the church. Um, so I see a, a very um, clear, I guess, both practical and theological basis for, for hoping that the future of leadership in the church um, will look like women from the majority world. And that can be um, one of the ways we respond as a church through that kind of investment. And Hannah, I know you have just edited a book, Words for a Dying World, um, which has thought to include sort of a global range of voices. Tell us a bit about kind of who's contributing to that volume and um, some of the themes that come up in it. Yeah, so um, I very deliberately wanted to put together a collection that would um, bring a range of different approaches and perspectives and even styles of writing. So, you know, it includes people who write for a living and people who are being published for the first time. Um, it includes poetry and song, um, eyewitness accounts readings of scripture, the experience of activists, and then, um, you know, theological histories as well. Um, and the book, I guess, invites the start of a conversation on what climate and ecological grief means for um, our theology across the global church. And because that's um, a conversation that's starting rather than one that's already underway, 
the book tries to present a real diversity of approaches to that experience. So as an editor, one of the things that was kind of exciting and also almost a little bit intimidating about doing it was that there are, there are you know, contributions in the book that I would not have written that I wouldn't necessarily say um, reflect my particular theological tradition, but that reflect the tradition and the experience of someone else who is part of the body of Christ and who has their own story or history of climate and ecological grief to bring. Um, and one of the reasons for, I guess, treating it as a collection in that way as well was that quite often when we talk about climate and ecological grief, we'll experience this feeling of being overwhelmed because it feels like we're talking about the death of you know everything. It feels like this um, big abstract idea that's very difficult to respond to. But actually, we don't grieve death, death in abstraction. Um, we grieve the death of particular things and people and places. So one of the things that we tried to do in the book was to gather that particularity. It's a particularity of geography and it's also a particularity of history. Um, so it's almost like little snapshots from times and places in the world um, that are bound together by this shared experience and by this um, shared set of beliefs um, that are then interpreted in very different ways. And so my hope is that people reading it will be invited to consider their own grief or perhaps the lack of it and what that means theologically. And also that they'll be provoked into solidarity, that it's a book that invites um, the sense of being a participant in a, in a wider phenomenon, in a wider experience um, that isn't privatised, that doesn't just belong to you, um, but that has consequences um, for all of us. And it's published by SCM Press and is available. Bye now. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been a wonderful conversation, Hannah. Thank you so much for uh, helping us see the importance of uh, ecological grief and telling us a little bit about the work that you've been doing. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been a really good conversation. If you'd like more engagement of theology, culture, and discipleship from the two cities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. If you like the content that we put out here on the Two Cities podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.